Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Robert Dahl is with us. He's with Naveen Asset Management, and he is the guy who kept you in the market to enjoy a 10-year per year return of 15% plus. The Dahl mandate, you got to be in the markets to play. Describe the play this morning, Bob Dahl. Why should I be in the equity markets? Because the economy and earnings this year are going to be off the charts. We're going to have the strongest economic growth this year in at least 20. Could be as many as the strongest growth in 36 years. That will carry earnings along. This will be a great year for the economy and earnings. I think it's just a good year for the stock market. In other words, I think multiples are held back a bit, Tom, because of modestly rising interest rates and inflation. Behind you is the the logo of the esteemed Nuveen of Chicago, owned by TIAA Craft, you know, the retirement combine. Good morning, Roger Ferguson. Bob Dahl, do you need to raise your actuarial assumption with double-digit returns, Democratic President, House, Senate, do you begin to lift up our actuarial return? Oh, maybe for the next few months, Tom, but uh, longer term, I don't think so. Stocks and bonds are both expensive relative to their history. Therefore, the next five and 10 years, the return's probably going to be a lot lower than it was for the last five or 10 years. That's the law of averages. So it's going to be harder to make a buck going forward. How much how much harder? In other words, are we looking at a one percent future? Are we looking at a three or four percent future? It makes a difference when you look at some of the liabilities. Agreed. So if stocks were 15 for the last 10 years, I'll guess half that for the next 10 years, seven on a good day, eight. Bonds are going to be a lot lower because they're coupon. You, you, you can't take rates lower than where we were. And therefore, if rates climb higher, we're going to erode the coupon. So return on Treasury bonds are going to be close to zero. Wow. Meanwhile, we have the U.S. continuing to borrow money. And Tom and I were just talking about how the hawks have been defeated, have disappeared, however you want to frame it. Are we moving toward a modern uh, modern monetary theory world? And what does that mean for markets? I suspect uh, we are in uh, that world and uh, whether we've called it that or not. Look, I think the question I get from financial advisors most over the last five years is, what about the debt and the deficits? And my response was, and still is, it doesn't matter yet. You see, interest rates have fallen faster than the debt has gone up. So interest expense as a percentage of our economy has actually gone nowhere. And therefore, it's not been an issue. If we pile up the debt and interest rates start climbing higher, then we're going to have a day of reckoning. Bob Dahl and Tom Keen reading Heilbronner and Bernstein. This was a few years ago on the debt and the deficit, which was a gospel on the confusion of cash and actuarial accounting. Bob Dahl, I want to get back to the markets. You know the acclaimed Ibbotson chart out of Yale University. But within that lower left to the upper right, there is rotation. How do you play the rotation of 2021? After a decade where economic growth globally has been so-so at best, which has favored the U.S., our economy, our markets, and our currency, because we are the most defensive economy in the world. We have fewer cyclicals. We are now reflating. Thank you, central banks all over the world. We're going to have some stronger growth, and therefore batons are getting passed from growth to value, from big to small 
from U.S. to non-U.S. What about the battle of active and index? Naveen really takes both parts of that equation, but there's just a general feeling out there about stock picking or sector picking or the value of buying indexes or sub-indexes. Which is it? So in a year like last year, when the big five stocks outperform by massive amounts, that's a year for the index. If this is a year when those half dozen stocks don't perform as well as the averages, which is our guess, then the average stock begins to do better and active managers have a better chance. I think the average active manager will outperform in 2021. Well, everyone wants to be an active manager, at least if you take a look at the Robinhood accounts and people sitting home getting their stimulus checks and putting them into uh, individual equity. I was, I was looking at one statistic yesterday that a handful of penny stocks accounted for a fifth of all U.S. equity trading on Monday. How much do you think about that increased retail presence in equity trading when you think about asset allocation? It is definitely a force out there. It's a narrower group of stocks, as you hinted at, and therefore you have to know kind of where are they playing. Now, some of those Robinhood investors actually did very well. They bought into the decline last March and they bought high beta stocks. So they've done reasonably well. We got to watch them carefully. Them, that group, along with the algorithms, uh, create the issues for buying and selling stocks all day. You got you to be really careful. All right. In the meantime, you have these IPOs, the tech IPOs coming out. We were talking about a firm earlier with incredible uh, valuation. Some people saying they're worth it. Others saying signs of froth, including Jeff Gunlock of Double Line Capital. Where do you weigh in? I mean, how are you playing in some of these IPOs? Lisa, I think uh, that there is merit to the fact that the size of them, the number of them, the premium uh, that, that they're selling at uh, <clears throat> means <throat> we've got some speculation. Now, it's easy to compare it to where we were at the tech.com uh, bubble. We're nowhere near that level in terms of valuations. Remember, there were no earnings then. There were few sales. It was price to clicks, price to eyeballs. Now we can at least touch the revenues of these companies. So uh, I, I don't want to sound the alarm like we could have or should have or did uh, yeah. sound back then. Bob Dahl, you've been such a sane voice for participating in the markets over the years. Richard Edelman joined us oh, an hour and a half ago as well with his famed Edelman Trust Barometer. And it's about media distrust, distrust of politicians, distrust wrapped around vaccination. I want you to talk about your world in the Friday onset of gloom that's out there. You know, as a rule, every Friday, the gloom crew comes out to beat up Bob Dole. How do we get back the trust of Wall Street strategists who've enjoyed this bull market? How do we get a belief in that optimism? I think it's going to take some time, Tom, and, and, and some returns that are good. Look, Last March, uh, February, March, uh, destroyed a lot of people's faith in all the things you just mentioned. All they had to do was hang around or, or blink. I mean, if you were Rip Van Winkle, you thought last year was a good, calm, quiet year um, because nothing really happened from, from beginning of the year to end of the year. But of course, the, the in-between. Volatility kills people's confidence. Uh, but volatility is when you can make a buck. Well, Bob Dahl, I have to leave it there. Robert Dahl, thank you so much with Naveen. Just wonderful to kick off All the 2021. Best. What we're really good at, Lisa Bramowitz, John, uh, Jonathan Farrell, and myself, we try to get out front, and we've got a team that puts together guests.
And then we know when the news changes, when the facts change, we tell the guests to change. We can do that with Lester Munson, with BGR Group, with a distinguished career in Washington in foreign policy. Lester Munson, we learned moments ago from what I think is the most important signal from the nascent Biden administration that they will take John Fitzgerald Kennedy's U.S. aid program, which has been a political football for 50, 60 uh, years, and they will restructure it and elevate it to a White House position with Samantha Power. What is President-elect Biden signaling? Well, for the for folks who follow foreign assistance issues and soft power and uh, and these kind of more obscure aspects of American diplomacy, it's terrific news. Samantha Power is uh, is a force. She's an uh, intellectual powerhouse. Uh, I'm not saying she's right about every single issue, but she's dynamic. Uh, she's interesting. She's going to bring a lot of energy and verve to what has been, frankly, a sleepy agency in the U.S. government. And I think it's a it's a huge opportunity for President Biden to make a difference around the world, particularly in the developing world, a place where we haven't really been present for the last four years. If we assume whatever our politics that we are restructuring USAID, are we going to restructure state? And do you look for the same drama from a new State Department? Uh, you know, that's a great question. One, one of the things that President Biden appears to be doing is really strengthening the NSC, uh, which means he's he's pulling power into the White House. That's not great for the State Department. Uh, Tony Blinken's a trusted advisor. If he's confirmed as secretary, as I expect he will be, that'll be a plus for the department. But there, there could be rocky times ahead for the State Department. Lester, as a never-Trump Republican yourself, who still considers himself a Republican, who worked in the Bush administration, how does the, the Republican Party without Trump distinguish itself from the Democratic Party of today? Well, I think there's, there's plenty of issues where that can happen. Uh, economic issues, social issues, uh, foreign policy. Republicans are a hawkish national security uh, party. We need to find that voice again. It's been uh, modulated and muddied up during the, the Trump years. Uh, Liz Cheney's as good uh, a carrier of that message as anyone. Adam Kinzinger, who's going to be supporting her in voting for impeachment of the president, uh, is another excellent voice in that regard. So I see some of these younger uh, more dynamic Republicans emerging from this chaos. Do you think that those younger, more dynamic Republicans will vote in tandem with Democrats to get some sort of fiscal stimulus through, to get some of other uh, aspects of Joe Biden's administration through, even if it sort of muddies this line as they try to uh, reestablish their identity? Well, I think that's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, Republicans uh, are occasionally fiscal conservatives. Not so for the last four years. They seem to be rediscovering that, as they often do when they're not in the White House. So there's a little bit of cynicism there. Uh, but I expect that Republicans will be more skeptical of massive payments uh, in response to the pandemic. Uh, but, but there'll be places where Republicans, never Trumpers, and even some uh, pro-Trump Republicans will find a way to vote with the Biden administration. I expect there to be more bipartisanship than people think in the next few months. Lester, I don't want you to game what we see after 5 p.m.-ish today, but can the Senate find 17 Republican votes to convict the president of the United States? I know that's an unfair question to you, but that is the question yeah. of the moment. It, it is the question. And it's what everyone's uh, reading between the lines for. It's, uh, it's a very 
difficult goal. It's a high bar to get over. The fact that Mitch McConnell is out there signaling that he might embrace this process is very telling. He does not do things on a whim. Uh, he would only be sending that signal if it looked like there was progress towards that goal. Now, there's there's plenty of road to go down here, even though it's just a few days. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of voices we need to hear from, but it does seem like things are trending in that direction. I still think it's, it's probably too difficult to quite get there, but we're on the way. You know, I, I, I look, we're on the way and, you know, we're on to new changes. I want to circle back, Lester, to our foreign policy. What, again, is, is there going to be a strategy or a theme that you can glean now from Biden foreign policy or not? Uh, it's it's hard to say. Uh, you know, during the campaign and during the transition, the Biden people would put out a kind of boilerplate statement saying they wanted to restore U.S. leadership in the world. And I think those of us who are uh, in the swamp or a little more cynical kind of dismiss that. But that's a very real thing right now. Given the events of last week, the pre- President Biden is going right. to have to take active steps to restore the the image, the, the posture and the leadership of the U.S. in the world. Well, He's just going to have to do that. It's going to take a long time. Lester, thank you so much, particularly on that breaking news of a new USAID program for President-elect Biden. Lester Munson with BGR Group. It is time for a reset. We're doing this within the huge distractions of Washington. Of course, this agony of a pandemic. Michelle Meyer joins from Bank of America Securities, head of U.S. economics. Michelle, on your acclaimed spreadsheet, out to June, and dare I say, out to the end of 2021, what numbers have you tweaked? What are you changing at the margin, given the just the outrage of this January? Sure. So, um, hey, Tom. Hi, Lisa. Good to be with you this morning. Um, you know, I, I think on the upside, certainly it's what you all have been very focused on, which is the news coming out of Washington around the prospects of additional stimulus. Um, and the extent to which that is passed you know, quickly in the year um, with you know, additional quote-unquote transfer payments, either through unemployment insurance or another round of, of, of checks or aid to state local governments, that can provide a real big uh, you know, uh, jolt to the economy um, in the spring. So that's certainly the upside story, and it's an important one. Um, on the downside, uh, we have to continue to pay attention to the virus. The virus cases are rising. Restrictions are ongoing. We did see... Yeah pretty clear moderation of growth at the end of 2020. Um, so it's these, these offsetting factors, um, which I think are extremely important as we look past into yeah. the next few months. I want to go back to your first claim, which is analysis of the American housing market. Is the housing boom right now only about the haves removed from this pandemic? Yeah, so, you know, I do think part of what's happened in the housing market reflects the quote-unquote K-shaped recovery. Um, the fact that those folks that have been able to keep their jobs through this um, horrific time have done so with pretty stable wage growth um, and a lot of, you know, unintentional savings as a result of the restrictions and the inability to spend on certain services. And that clearly has led to greater investment in housing and housing-related items. Whereas those that, you know, have, have had a harder time accessing the housing market um, have been more inclined to be renters, have seen greater stress. So I do think that's part of the story. That said, um, there's been a broad 
you know, pick up in, in, in housing activity. You know, it's not just the very high end of the market. You have seen some movement as well on the lower end of the housing market. And just look this morning, mortgage applications, uh, a nearly 17% increase week over week, purchase applications up 8% week over week. So, you know, it looks like we're going to be maybe heading into that spring selling season with a bit more momentum as well for housing, given where we are with mortgage rates. So, Michelle, when you talk about the K-shaped recovery and the haves and the have-nots, as Tom uh, said very well, there's a question of how important the rally in asset prices, which really is a feature of the haves, is for the broader Mm -hmm. economy for both the haves and the have-nots. How crucial is it that asset prices continue to go up or at least stay high for the economy to gain steam? So that's one of the transmission mechanisms, I guess you may say, of monetary policy is that by keeping interest rates extraordinarily low, um, they're, yes, lowering the cost of capital, making it easier to borrow, but they're you know, also helping to inflate asset prices and build wealth. And that wealth ultimately should be spent to some extent um, and support the broad economy. Um, so elevated asset prices, I would say, is you know comes with easier financial conditions, which is one of the very important mechanisms by which monetary policy supports the economy. Well, I guess the reason why I ask this is in light of the inflation data that we were just talking about, CPI, mm-hmm. which rents and housing prices are a part of. There's this feeling yep. that the inflation that we've seen, the money that's been printed has gone almost entirely into the financial markets and hasn't been able to really trickle out into the, uh, into the real economy that much just because so much of it's been shut down. How much yeah. is it important? I mean, how what's the risk here that if we do get a dis inflationary deflation of asset prices, a sell-off, a bust, that could really disable uh, the economy in a massive way. So I would say there's, 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 yes, looking at asset prices is one important, you know, channel, but also think about the money supply. That's more kind of the real economy, and that reflects the fiscal policies that have been put in place, and there's been a dramatic increase in the money supply. None of that asset price inflation or the money supply gain has yet to filter in to underlying inflation. But it can over time if it works to support higher economic growth and an increase in GDP growth, which ultimately leads to that broadening of labor market um, growth and, and, and prompts higher inflation. But that's not the story for today. You know, we saw from today's CPI report, underlying measures of inflation are still mm-hmm. extremely tame, given that we have this lack in the economy. And to your point, what if we have you know, a big kind of sell-off in the market or this kind of quote-unquote deflation in asset markets, I think it highly depends on, you know, what that looks like. A short-term correction is fine from an economics perspective. You know, yes, you get a little bit of a hit to confidence, but the, the, the link into the economy is fairly limited. But a sustained one obviously would be problematic. Michelle Meyer, Secretary Yellen will have to deal with what are seem to be big fiscal packages does a marginal $100 billion matter? I mean, Ethan Harrison, you are wonderful at this. I mean, we talk about trillions and the drama of what we say, but do you nuance yeah. $100 billion here, $100 billion there? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the support to the economy from fiscal stimulus right now, obviously it's been extreme, the dollars that have been pumped into the, into the economy, but we would argue that it was necessary and probably will continue to be necessary Ultimately, that leads to a higher deficit, which at some point down the road will be problematic. But I don't think it's it's an issue that policymakers are paying too much attention to right now. And I would think that 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 sentiment will be continued if Treasury and the Fed 
for the next few years until the economy has fully healed. Uh, thanks so, uh, so thanks so much, Michelle. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. Right now, folks, this is the most conversation, uh, most important conversation of the day on the mental foundation of the market. And let's not mince words. It's founded on one stock. We speak to Daniel Ives on what was wrought in Cupertino. He is with Wedbush. Dan Ives, you've lofted up to $160 a share on Apple. And I want you to talk about your core belief that they will innovate. And Dan Ives, I want to go to the latest incarnation, the M1 chip. And folks, I'm not because of time, I'm not going to go into this. The M1 chip is getting rave reviews in the technology zeitgeist. Dan Ives, how do they do that? Cupertino, that's where the magic happens. And if you look at what they've done from an innovation, I think M1's a good example. That's a shot across the bow at Intel and the semiconductor industry in terms of Apple controlling more and more of their ecosystem. And I think what you've seen in the stock and you're seeing in the innovation really across the whole food chain, you know, Apple's continuing to flex their muscles and expand it more and more, especially with the super cycle now a reality right. playing out. But the great, great miscall of the Apple gloom crew, Dan Ives, has been the innovation's going to end. And the fact is the M1, it appears, I'm speaking as an amateur, looks like a ball over the wall, over the turnpike, over the cask and flag as well. Dan Ives, that's Red Sox talk in case you didn't know it. The bottom line is, Dan, is what is in the pixie dust that gives you confidence that they can continue to innovate? Well, take a step back, it's a golden and skull base, the best consumer products company in the world. That penetration we've seen with AirPods, we think AirPods over 90 million units this year. You're seeing with the M1 chip, and then ultimately in the next few years, we see them partnering on EV with the likes of a Volkswagen, a Hyundai, potentially a Tesla. It just speaks to why our opinion a year from now, we're looking at a $3 trillion stock for Apple as this all plays out. Remember, what the haters will hate. But they continue to innovate, and I think even what we'll see over the next month is they continue to execute China. That yeah. continues to be the linchpin of the growth. You have guys have no idea when the haters hate what it means to Dan Ives, the garbage he gets from people anti-Apple as well. As you model out 160 target, and then you extrapolate out, I mean, $3 trillion is unimaginable to those at $2 trillion or way back at $1 trillion as well. What do your linear functions look out five years? 10 years out for Cupertino? Yeah, first, the services business, I think, over the next three to four years, that could be worth upwards of $2 trillion. That services piece alone, you know, which if you look at that trajectory, that continues to be a big part of the re-rating. Then you look at the golden iPhone hardware ecosystem, I think that could be worth, you know, upwards down yeah. the road. Another $2 trillion to $3 trillion. That's why, look, this is a company right now still in the middle innings of a renaissance of growth. And the super cycle, that continues to be in right. fifth gear as we're seeing play out. What is the impact? I mean, you mentioned the iPhone and folks, full disclosure, another white bag went through the damn door yesterday at home. I mean, somebody in the house is buying another piece of Apple to keep Dan Ives live going. But Dan, what happens if they redo and innovate iMac or other products? I mean, is that in your Excel spreadsheet? 
I think that's all incremental. And ultimately, if you look, especially what we see with M1 chip and some of the other innovation happening in the halls of Cupertino, you further, further monetize that. That just adds to the overall ecosystem for Apple. And that's why right now, this right. is just further monetization of that install base. Do you agree they should do an automobile? I mean, why should they do an automobile? If it ain't broke, don't fix the model. Well, for EVs, we're talking about a trillion-dollar market. They're not going to be making the automobiles themselves. We believe they partner. We talk about VW, Hyundai, Tesla, potentially Daimler. That's the opportunity. You can't have the biggest consumer products company looking at EV from the outside looking in. It's very similar right. to what we're seeing with Baidu in China. A golden age for EVs. Apple's going to dive into the deep end of the right. pool. Dan Ives, you play by the rules as a securities analyst. After the joy, you've got that paragraph, special risks. What's the risk for Mr. Cook? The risk for Cook, it's China and the U.S., that cold tech war. They are the poster child. If you don't see a ratcheting down with Biden administration, that would be a risk to Apple, both supply chain as well as demand. And, of course, regulatory. I mean, that's going to continue to be a big tech versus Beltway. Okay. Battle. Just real quick here, Dan Ives, then if we get troubles with China, what does that do as a percent basis on free cash flow growth or revenue growth? How do you quantify that effect of trouble with China? 20% of iPhone demands China. And that, and you, you start to play with the math there. You could start to see anywhere from 3 to 5% downside to bull case numbers. And of course, supply chain. Remember that? They bet the horse in terms of uh, Foxconn, so that supply chain disruption. That's why Apple is so key, and they're the poster child for U.S.-China cold tech war. What are we going to see when they report? I mean, they come out of the holiday season absolutely unique. I mean, the pandemic's made it original. What's your guesstimate of that earnings call? Uh, I mean, I think this is going to be a blockbuster, okay. a Devontae Smith-type quarter. And I think you're going to see more and more numbers continue to move up. And that's when the streets continuing to underestimate, in my opinion. Dan Ives, I'm going to leave it there because I've got a reset for an impeachment. Daniel Ives with some terrific work from Wedbush, this on Apple Computer. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.